Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. Yesterday we briefly talked about Christians who in most cases are what we call good weather Christians. They are only with the Lord when things are okay. They are only with the Lord when following Him means popularity. They are only with the Lord when following Him means status in society. But when persecutions come, when oppositions come, they say, Lord, uh, wait a minute, I will see you next year after my leave. The Apostle Paul concluded this chapter reminding Timothy that most of his friends had deserted him. They were not about to join him in the Roman dungeon. And when things got tight, they stopped visiting. They created excuses for not being available. If some had mobile phones, they would have put them off on voicemail. And the Apostle Paul finds himself in a situation where not many are willing to stand for the gospel. And the Apostle Paul is saying, Timothy, you must recommit yourself to this gospel message. And while everyone else is deserting, you cannot afford to be like them. And so when we open up in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy how he ought to behave, how he ought to conduct himself in the midst of the desertion of the rest of the brothers. Now in this passage, we will find a number of do's and don'ts. We will find a number of commands and imperatives. But all these commands and imperatives rest on one sure truth. And that is the opening of verse 1. Where the Apostle Paul is saying, That you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That is the foundation of everything that the Apostle Paul is going to say in chapter 2. It is quite common for us as believers to look at the Bible as a manual on how to do things. You approach the Bible as a list of do's and don'ts, but essentially that is actually legalism. The Apostle Paul wants Timothy to understand that if he is going to succeed in the ministry of guarding and standing for this gospel, he must be fully anchored in the grace of the Lord. He must find his strength, not in his abilities, not even in his personal giftings, not even in his experience and popularity, but in the grace of God that continually strengthens him, that continually upholds him when the tide of life is too much for a human being to bear. So even as we look through these do's and don'ts, please be reminded that they cannot be fulfilled by personal effort or human endeavor. It is against the background of the strength that Timothy must draw from the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. So the Apostle Paul says, Timothy, you must stand firm in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And having stood firm in this grace, you must do one important thing. The things that you have heard me speak, not even privately with you, although we've shared a lot as friends, but in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, this is the gospel that the Apostle Paul would have been proclaiming. And now he's saying, Timothy, this very gospel you have heard me preach, this pattern of sound teaching, 
this good doctrine of our Lord Jesus that I have not shied away from, that I have fearlessly and publicly declared, now this is the time for you to pass on this very teaching, these very things to faithful men who will also pass them on to other faithful men. Please notice the qualification of the people that Timothy must pass on the gospel to. The Apostle Paul is not saying pass them on to popular men. He's not saying pass them on to theologians who have finished their theological education. He's not saying pass them on to people who are available in your congregation. He's saying pass them on to faithful men. The qualification for successful ministry, both in terms of living and execution, is based on faithfulness to the calling. There are so many people today who are involved in Christian ministry, but really they are based on a wrong foundation. Either they are in ministry because their parents were, so they have inherited the ministry. My father was a pastor, naturally he trained me to be like one, I went to theological school, eventually here I am. I am in the ministry because I am respecting the wishes of my father, not because really I have been called. Today we have many people who are in ministry because ministry is popular. To be a pastor these days is one of the most respected statuses in life. To be a bishop and you know put on your collar, somebody looks at you and says, wow, this one has arrived. So you are in the ministry because of popularity. Today people are in the ministry because ministry has become a shortcut for success. All you need is to have a small worship team, have some machines, give a few prophecies, and in the next two months, you are going to be one of the richest guys on the continent. So today, if you want to be rich, shortcut, start a church. But Paul is telling Timothy that, no, none of those things is the qualification for being a gospel minister. Faithfulness is key. These men must pass the test. Have they been faithful in the little things that God has given them? Have they been consistent both in their beliefs and in their practices? Are they what the men that are focused that will stand the course and continue to preach and to pass on this button? The secret to the kingdom of God encapturing the nations of the world is passing on the button to faithful men. Faithful men, not popular men. Not intelligent men, not those who are available, not those who wish they could, but those that have been faithful, have proven themselves, and those that will pass on the message. I am always amazed by uh, Jesus in the Gospels, how he did call people. At one time, in fact, you read in the Gospels, and there is a certain man who came to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, please go back home. Then immediately Jesus turns to another Pharaoh and he says, come and follow me. And the man says, uh, thank you, but would you please allow me to first go home and bury my father, then I will come back and I will serve you. The man who wants to follow Jesus, Jesus says, no. The man Jesus wants him to follow him has excuses and is not willing to follow. But what does this tell us? That the ministry is not just for available willing people. The ministry is for committed faithful men. It is not people who come in because it is convenient or it is the least qualified job. Anybody can come to preach whether you have a degree or not. 
It is actually for men that have proven themselves worthy in the presence of God. And Paul is saying, Timothy, those are the men that you must give the gospel. And of course, behind this is even the most important key principle. That if Timothy cannot pass on the gospel, then this is the end of the gospel. And Paul is saying, this cannot happen. Timothy, remember what happened in your background. Your grandmother gave the gospel to your mother. Your mother gave the gospel to you. Now what are you supposed to do? That is how the kingdom works. That is how the ministry works. That is how the church grows. That's how Christianity conquers the world. Number three, or verse three, he says, Timothy, you must share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. And you are going to notice that almost all the rest of the passages, in one way or another, come back to this very phrase. The call to suffering, the charge to suffering. All along, Paul has been preparing Timothy for this one important call. The call not just to pass on the gospel, but to be willing to pay the price for the gospel. If there is anything, I think, that has eroded the Christians of our generation today, is the price that must be made for the gospel to go to the ends of the world. The way we see ministry today is far different from what people would have seen it like in the first century. Today to be a minister or to be a pastor, like I said earlier, is to be popular, to have status, to have money, to travel abroad every weekend. And when we envision ministry, we are thinking about privileges and benefits. But we must understand that in the first century, ministry was not about benefits. No wonder the Apostle Paul says that he who desired to be a bishop desires a good thing. Because he knew that even to stand up to be a minister meant that you could lose your life. It meant that you could end up in jail like the Apostle Paul. It meant that you could lose your family. Being a Christian in the first century was not one of those popular things. It was a sacrifice. It was laying down your life on the altar. But today's Christianity sees it differently. The Apostle Paul is saying that for any minister or any man who has sensed or received the call to the gospel ministry, he must count the cost. He must be willing to pay the price. And in fact, Jesus doesn't for him limit it even to gospel ministers. He even extends it to every would-be follower. Remember what we talked about, I think, two days ago, where Jesus makes one of those serious altar calls. Large crowds have gathered around him. Maybe some of them had eaten bread at when he fed the 5,000. Maybe some were accused the seekers who wanted to see him perform miracles. And as excitedly they gather around him, what does Jesus say? If anyone must come after me, he must deny his father, his mother, his brother, his sister, or yes, even himself, carry his cross daily, and follow me. In the first century, if someone talked about carrying the cross, you knew what it meant. The cross was a cross of shame. It was a symbol of suffering. It was a symbol of death. It was a one-way road. You walked from Jerusalem, outside the city, with the cross or the pillars of the timber on your shoulders, all the way to the place of execution, with shame, people mocking you, laughing at you, 
in fact psychologically and emotionally you died before you reached the place of crucifixion and this is what Jesus is saying that for you to be a disciple or a follower you cannot just be a good weather follower who follows when it is convenient you must be willing to go all the way following Jesus will cost you everything and in fact after reading this passage Jesus moves with his disciples across the lake where they encounter a huge storm and when they have come out of the storm and they go on the other side of the lake what do they meet? they meet a demoniac a man who had a legion of demons and he's about to stone them the disciples are wondering what's really going on today but they are still remained full of the words of Jesus following Jesus sometimes will take you into a storm Following Jesus is risky. Sometimes it will take you into the region of the demons. And the question is, are you ready? Have you counted the cost? Are you sure you are up to the task? Paul says, Timothy, as a faithful servant of the Lord, you must be willing to share in the sufferings of the gospel. Now you would have thought, Paul should have said, you must be willing to enjoy the privileges of the gospel. You see, Timothy, everywhere I go, I perform miracles and wonders. People like me because when I encounter people that are possessed by demons, I exercise my authority and I cast out those demons. You see, the gospel is about power. It's about miracles. It's about influence. It's about authority. No, Paul does not say any of those things. He says the gospel is is one that will call suffering your way. I wish I could change your world view on what it means to be a gospel minister. In a generation like ours, where we have all sorts of distortions on what it means to be a gospel minister, it is very, very important that we listen to Paul very carefully. Because you will notice that his description of the gospel is far different from what our society is telling us today. And as a matter of fact, so many young people are rushing into ministry unprepared because they were deceived on what the gospel really is and eventually when they reached there, they had their fingers burnt. Paul is saying, count the cost, Timothy, because upholding this gospel, standing for this gospel, will cost you everything. And then he proceeds to give him some metaphors, some illustrations, Some examples of what it means to really be a minister of the gospel that is faithful. He likens him to a soldier. And he says that no soldier entangles himself in civilian affairs. And basically what he is saying is that everyone who goes into war, number one, he must be single-minded in his purpose. He must be rigorous in his self-discipline. He must be unquestioning in his obedience. If there is anything that is dangerous, it is the war front line. You cannot afford to exercise liberty on the front line. You listen to one man, in Kiswahili we say, You cannot afford to have two voices. You cannot afford to question the order from your commander. And any slight mistake might mean your death, might mean the death of your friends, just because of a miscalculation or a failure to heed an order that has been given to you. There is no soldier who goes to the whole front line with a smile. There is no one who goes saying, ha, let's go to the front line and win, guys. Let's go and kill those fellows. No. 
There is no soldier who, when he is going to the front line, is planning how to come back tomorrow and put up a house for his family. When you are going to the front line, there is only one thought. Can I stay alive? Can I come back breathing? That is the single mind. But secondly, your second purpose is, can I engage myself in the battle in a way that I will please the commander who enlisted me? Single-mindedness and questioning obedience, self-discipline, characterize a faithful, courageous soldier. And Paul is telling Timothy that you are going to have to be that kind of man if you are going to stand for this gospel. But he goes ahead and also likens him with an athlete. And he says that an athlete, in order for him to win the crown, which is the goal of his running in the first place, he must compete according to the rules. Every game has rules. You cannot come in and decide and say, me, I will have my own rules for winning this game. You cannot start running before the referee has blown the whistle. That will be your own race. If you are not careful, you will be disqualified. You cannot say, well, the referee said we can run ten laps, but for me, I think I can run nine, and I will be the winner. No. Until the whistle blows, you do not quit the race. Today we live in a generation that is called a generation of almost. Almost is the most absurd word you can ever hear in your lifetime. In fact, I call it the most tragic word there is. You see, when you use the word almost, it means that you were about to get there. It doesn't mean that you did. Many times you hear stories of disappointment from different people and they use that word almost a lot. I almost married that girl. Yeah, are they married? I almost won that rotary. Did he? I almost passed in the first grade in my exams. Did he? I almost bought that car. Is he driving? You were almost about to get there, but you never do. In fact, one of the men that will for all times be remembered for as long as the world lives is one unfortunate man called Pontius Pilate. We recite him in the Apostles' Creed. Wherever you gather as Christians, before you finish the service, somehow Pontius Pilate comes in. Do you know what makes him popular? He's the man who almost did the right thing. So you have Pilate in the Gospels. He knows that Jesus is really a sinless man, and he himself confesses and says, I do not find anything wrong with this man. Somewhere we are even told that his wife comes to him and said, I got a dream last night, please have nothing to do with this righteous man. About seven times Pilate is recorded, trying, struggling to make a decision, and it says that he went into the house and he came out, number one. Number two, he went into the house and he came out. Number three, he went into the house and he came out. He keeps going into the house, thinking through what he's about to do. He comes out. Seven times he's recorded struggling with the decision. He comes and says, well, so what should we do with this Jesus? And the people say, of course, we need to have him crucified. And Pilate thinks, but the man is righteous, but the man has done nothing. Anyway, he comes and says, uh, me, I wash my hands. That is your decision. You have decided to crucify an innocent man. I am not part of it. Really? You are not part of it and you are the signatory? 
That's why these guys are here, so that you can find. And eventually, against his own judgment, against what he knew to be true, against the advice of his wife, against the conviction of his own conscience, he compromisingly prefers to keep the throne and the goodwill of the people and hands over the innocent man to be crucified. The man who almost did the right thing, but never did. The most tragic thing ever. And that characterizes our generation today. People who almost do the ministry but never do. People who almost endured but never did. I was not supposed to sleep with my girlfriend. In fact, I almost said no. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I, I almost left that money, you know. I knew I was not supposed to take it. In fact, I even prayed about it. And I almost left it, but... <laughs> My friend Deus usually likes to give an example of a man who is not addicted to donuts and is not supposed to eat them. So he passes by a restaurant where they sell donuts and he's like, oh my God, what am I going to do now? So he prays, he says, Lord, I am going to drive to that restaurant. If I find there is no parking space, I will know it is not your will that I should eat this donut. <laughs> so he goes to the restaurant and he finds there is no parking space. So he moves around and he comes back. And he says, this time, if I find there is no parking space, I will know I shouldn't eat the donut. So he goes around again and comes back, there is no parking space. So he does that for 11 times. <laughs> On the 11th time, there is a parking space. And he said, aha, Lord, now I know it is your will that I eat the donut. <laughs> That's our generation. You know the right thing to do. But for some reason you never get there. You are almost. And Timothy is saying the, the, the gospel ministry is not for men of the almost. It is for people who endure to the very end. It is for people who do what it takes. They don't quit the rest until they hear the whistle. It doesn't matter whether they are feeling chest pain. It doesn't matter whether they are sweating. It doesn't matter whether people who are cheering are saying, oh, please, please. They must endure to the very end. And Paul is saying, Timothy, you must live your life like an athlete. But also, thirdly, you must live your life like a hard-working farmer. Not only does he work hard to plant, but he patiently waits for the harvest. Gospel ministry requires patience. And again, our generation today is a generation of dot-com, men and women. A generation of emergence. A generation of quick things. Where we want things to happen instantly. If there is any generation that is impatient today, it is our generation. Not only does it happen in business and in our social life, but even in the church. We are a dot-com church. You come to the church and you expect the pastor to preach for five minutes. Before he starts, you are already looking at your watch. If he goes beyond five minutes, you are more concerned about the minute he went beyond than the message he preached. And Paul is saying, Timothy, carrying this gospel ministry to the ends of the world is going to require patient endurance, is going to require perseverance, is going to require focus, is going to require self-discipline, is going to require a man who does not quit. And then he goes on from verses 8 to 11, he gives him some encouragement. 
Remember, he is still reminding Timothy that as much as these are the things you need to do, you cannot do them on your own. These are the ideals, but in your human weaknesses and limitations, you cannot easily do them. So what will you do? Number one, you must stand in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Number two, from verse 11, he reminds him the secret of success in this ministry. He says, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Jesus, who was of the seed of David, meaning that he is the messianic king, meaning he is the promised messiah. This Jesus whom I preached, this Jesus who rose from the dead. Even as you face death, even as you face persecution, even as you face challenges in your Christian walk, as you try to stand firm and to guard the gospel, remembering Jesus who died and rose again will give you the encouragement you need to move on. It is very, very important for Timothy to remember that what he's going through is not the first one who has gone through it. It is very important for Timothy to know that those who went ahead of him have overcome. So that looking at the joy and the hope of the resurrection, he is able to endure the present. One challenges that Christians in our times face is that most of us have lost focus of the future. We only live for the present. But Christianity, once you take away the hope of the future, then there is no reason for anybody to live well for the present. Why would I want to behave well if not for the expectation that Jesus is coming back? Our, the generation of about a hundred years ago in our country was a generation that was eschatologically focused. Everything they did, they did it with an eye on eternity. You come to our hymnals and our songs that we used to sing in those days and almost every stanza of our hymn ended with the expectation of the second coming. And because Christians expected Jesus to come soon, they behaved reverently and accountably in their present lives. But our generation today is a generation that operates on the philosophy of eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We don't know what, what happens in the future. We don't know what is going to happen tomorrow. Therefore, the only benefit you can get is the one you grab now. So we have an aggressive generation, we have a greedy generation, we have an insensitive generation, one that lives only for today. A generation that sacrifices eternity at the altar of the immediate. And the Apostle Paul is saying, Timothy, look at the future. Remember what happened to Jesus. Remember he is the resurrected Lord. And as you keep your eye on the hope of the resurrection, you will find strength to live for the present. Very, very important to understand. But he goes on in verse 9 and says, Please remember that this is the gospel I have preached. The gospel of the resurrected Jesus. The Jesus who gives hope beyond the grave. The Jesus who has conquered our worst fear, which is death, and has introduced us to eternal life and immortality. And remembering this will give you courage. And it is this very gospel, the Apostle Paul goes ahead and says, it is this very gospel that I'm suffering for. So now you know what makes it important, the resurrection. Now you know why it is worth suffering for. Now you know why it is worth suffering for. Verse 10, he says that, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, those who have been chosen by God from before the foundations of the world that they may also obtain a salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
The Apostle Paul has two things that majorly motivate him. Number one, for the fact that the gospel is about Jesus who has resurrected. But also number two, the plight of the elect, men and women, that God has graciously chosen in eternity, who in the time must receive the gospel, must heed the gospel, in order for them to have eternal life. And if Paul will not endure for anything, he will at least endure because of the hope of the resurrection, and he will endure because there are people that still need to be reached for the gospel. And Timothy, your world is still full of people that do not know the gospel. So if you must hang in there, hang in there for the sinners around you. Hang in there for those men and women that still need to be exposed to the gospel ministry. From verse 11, he says that this is a saying that is trustworthy. And again, this is meant to encourage Timothy. That if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And by dying with him, the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy of his own conversion. When he became a Christian, when he trusted the Lord Jesus as his personal Savior, he died unto sin and rose unto righteousness. And now as a new believer in Christ Jesus, he has hope of eternity with Jesus Christ. But what does the life of a believer in Christ look like? It is a life that doesn't look back. It is a life that endures. It is a life that seeks to follow Christ, no matter where Christ leads that life. And Paul tells him that this is the joy of the redeemed. Not only do they have hope of fellowship with Jesus Christ, but they also have the ability and the motivation to endure, because endurance eventually results in reigning with Christ. Timothy, if you must have encouragement as to why you must endure, keep an eye on the future. Those who endure to the end, eventually will reign with Christ. But also, secondly, what we see from verse uh, 12 and verse 13, is that there is not only the joy of those who endure, but there is also the folly of those who deny Jesus. Paul gives a comfort, and in the same sentence, he gives a warning. So Timothy, know the pros and cons. If you endure, this is what happens. If you do not endure, this is what happens. So he tells him the folly of those who deny the gospel. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. And what basically he says here by God remaining faithful is that God remains faithful on his promises. Promises to reign with those who will endure to the end, but also promises to deny or cut off those who will deny him in the presence of many. Those who will turn away from the preaching of the gospel. Those who will turn away from the truth they have known. God remains faithful. He will still give them the judgment that they deserve. And you come to verse 14. And once again the apostle Paul brings in another illustration. Remember he is talking about the faithful men. That Timothy must pass the gospel on to. So from verse 14 he says remind them of these things. And charge them before God. Not to quarrel about words which does no good. But only ruins the hearers. Instead of being involved in quarrelsome things or in non-essential things, debates that will not profit or edify them, they should instead concentrate on being the kind of men that God wants them to be. And you, Timothy, must be an example. From verse 14, 15, Paul tells Timothy what he's supposed to do. 
Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed. One who rightly handles the word of God. Or who rightly divides the word of God. Who rightly cuts through the word of God with precision. No room for error whatsoever. One who is very careful to diligently, reverently, carefully handle the word of God in a manner that it will be salvific for those who believe and trust in this word. So again he is giving him the do's and the don'ts of a faithful minister. From verse 16 he tells him what to avoid. Avoid the relevant bubble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Jimenez and Philetus, who have served from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. One of the things that we find in the Christian community today is that there is a tendency to spend time discussing things that I call non-essentials. People will discuss things that will not even help them to grow in their spirituality, but they will discuss them to the point of fighting. You find people, for instance, even churches are splitting over non-issues. You know, somebody is asking, when we come to serve the Lord's Supper, Jesus used chapatis. So should we use chapatis or should we use sweet potatoes? Jesus used wine. Now, should we use soda? Should we just drink water? Now, Jesus broke the bread. Should we just break it or distribute it? But they are busy discussing the methodology of serving the Lord's Supper. But if you ask them what it even means, they have no idea. They don't know the importance. But they are busy discussing and fighting on the methodology. Non-essential. And Paul is saying, Timothy, a faithful minister does not have time for such irrelevant bubbles. You must know what is essential, what is edifying, what is building to the body of Christ, and concentrate on those. And as a warning, he gives him an example of some two guys who were already misleading people, and they were teaching that the resurrection has already taken place. What is one of the first encounters we get about false teachings who will oppose Timothy's ministry? And one thing that is key to note here is the subtleness of the false teachers. You notice Paul is not saying that these guys are denying the resurrection. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that yes, they believe in the resurrection, but they are saying that the resurrection has already done what? Taken place. Preachers of a different gospel are always not direct. They don't come to you and they say, uh, actually, uh, I am an agent of the devil, and you see one day we will go to hell, so why don't you join me and we go to hell together? You never find a preacher or cultist who does that. In most cases, they are so gentle, they are so nice, they are so loving. When they put a smile on their faces, you just feel that your heart is getting warm. When they stand to preach, they are passionate and inspirational. You wonder why they took long to come to the pulpit. Most of those guys are compassionate. They will be quick to help you. Most of them will agree with the Bible. They will preach biblical truth. But in between biblical truth, they will sandwich some lies, some distortions. If you don't have the necessary discernment to detect their distortions, you might easily be convinced that they are men of God. These guys were preaching the resurrection. They were in agreement with it. 
But guess what? They were saying the resurrection has already taken place. So guys, you have nothing to look forward to. And Paul is saying, watch out for those guys, Timothy. You will need serious discernment, not only to detect this, but to help your congregation or your followers against this deception. From verse 19, the Apostle Paul says that, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing his seal. While there are many whose faith has been shaken, and many have turned away because of the lies of these cultists, Timothy, it is important for you that you know that the Lord already knows who I is. And those who are is will turn away from iniquity. Those who are is will not condone or tolerate falsehood or deception. They will stand sure and secure in the truth of God's word and they will keep the course. Another great encouragement for Timothy, that yes, false teaching will come, yes, false teaching will oppose you, but it should not dishearten you. The Lord will keep his people. And those who have been called by the Lord, those who have received the gospel, will endure to the end, even in the face of false teaching. Very, very important. Then we come to verse 20. And again, he gives another illustration. Paul is the kind who likes to give several illustrations and metaphors to explain what he is teaching. He says, Timothy, the Christian life can be likened to a great house where there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for honorable use, some are for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from that which is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. What is Paul talking about? Paul is saying that Timothy, the standards of a minister of the gospel are much higher. He is expected to have credibility, to have integrity that is beyond that of the main society. Yes, there are so many vessels and all of them have use. But your target is not like to be a common man. It is not like to be a common vessel. Your target is to even distinguish yourself, to exercise excellence, to excel expectations, to be above all expectations, to live up to a standard of godliness and integrity that surpasses the surrounding culture around you. You want to be a special vessel. You want to be a noble vessel. And such is the kind of man that will not only uphold the gospel, but such is the kind of man that will create influence. Such a man will turn away from youthful passions. Such a man will pursue righteousness and love and faith and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Such a man, even in the face of opposition, rather than engaging in quarrels, will exercise patience and gentleness. Such a man has one mission, not only to win casual, passive sinners, but even to seek to win the opposition that is standing against him. He will exercise that kind of gentleness, that kind of wisdom, that kind of humility, that he might even bring those to repentance who have formerly stood against his teaching. Timothy, suffer for the gospel. Timothy, suffering for the gospel or standing for the gospel will cost you everything. But in your struggle to distinguish yourself as a man of God, as a faithful gospel minister, you must stand in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And in everything you do, Timothy, remember Jesus. Remember the resurrected one. Remember this Jesus that I have preached in my gospel. This gospel that has put me in chains and brought me into bondage. This gospel for which I suffer. 
This gospel for which I am willing to lay down my life. Timothy, remember this gospel. It's about the resurrected Jesus. And if you keep your eye on that man, if you keep your eye on the treasure that is found in this gospel, you will stand, you will patiently and perseveringly endure the suffering to come for the sake of the gospel. Timothy, pass this on. Praise the Lord. learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.